Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. How's everyone doing tonight? Glad to, uh, to have you here. My name is Matt Kressel, and uh, I co-host this series, Fantastic Fiction at KGB with Ellen Datlow. And uh, we've been doing this for a long, long time. Actually, the series has been going on a lot longer than we've been hosting it. It's been going on since late 90s, I think. And uh, it's always been free. And uh, the only thing we ask is that you uh, purchase a drink at the bar and support the bar. So whether it's a hard or soft drink, if you could uh, support your bartenders, give them a tip, tell them uh, what a good job they're doing. You know, yeah, Dan may be in the back uh, hanging out. I don't know what he's doing back there. Uh, yeah. Um, we have two uh, really awesome authors tonight, Mark Laidlaw and Daniel Brown will be reading for us. Yeah. And, um, so Dan- Daniel has books for sale, The Night Marchers and Other Stories, uh, Other Strange Tales, excuse me. Is it, where is it? Do you have it up here? Is it in the back? Okay, right, right back there by the door to the right. And he'll sign it in blood. And he will sign it. And Mark, do you, have, do you have books with you as well? Mark, do you, have, do you have books with you as well? Okay, just just Daniel uh, has copies. Um, so uh, yeah, at the break, go ahead, buy a copy, bring them up to Dan, and get him signed. Um, before we get on to our first reader, which will be Daniel, uh, next month, July twentieth, David Levine and Helen Marshall. August 17th, Leanna Renee Heber and Theodora Goss. September 21st, Laird Barron and Alyssa Wong. October 19th, Jack Ketchum and Caitlin R. Kiernan. November 16th, John Langan and yours truly will be reading here. December 21st, Livia Llewellyn and Sarah Pinsker. January 18th, Holly Black and Fran Wild. So we got a nice lineup for you. Um, hope you'll join us for those. Um, our first reader is Daniel Brown. Daniel is the author of the short story collection *The Night Marchers* and other strange tales, which was published in May 2016 as an ebook from Cemetery Dance and in print from Gray Matter Press. Brown's fiction blends fantasy, science fiction, mysticism, and horror, and over the last 10 years has appeared in publications ranging from Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet, Electric Velocipede, and Cemetery Dance Magazine. He lives and writes in New York. Here's Daniel Brown.
Hey everybody, it is so great to be here. Um, I was originally going to read something, but thanks to Mark uh, educating me about the importance of lunar rites today, we're going we're gonna to do a little course correction. Um, Pluto, Pluto not being a planet. Good thing, bad thing, how do people feel about this? Pluto a planet? Yes. Planet X, planet X, planet Nibiru, anyone know about it? So this is a new story. It's called The Truth About Planet X. Planet X is racing towards Earth. It's somewhere out there beyond the Coupier belt right now. But before long, it's going to crash down in the center of the Las Vegas Strip. No one else knows. Well, I've told my publisher I shouldn't have done that, but she doesn't believe me. I've told my bearded dragon, Larry, too. But he's been sleeping for months, and it's long past time for him to wake up. I place my ink cartridges and fresh needles gently atop my old suit that Sarah folded and placed into my luggage. I glance over at Larry's tank, hoping to find his sentient, knowing gaze looking back at me. His beige scaled eye coverings are closed. Rows and rows of spiky triangles, every color of the sand, cover his plump body. His tail and his limp limbs have shifted position since last night, but he's still hibernating, still half in the darkness of a hiding spot under his basking place. Sarah brings me the rest of my tattoo gear and I place it in the luggage. Anything else, she asks. She's grown into her wiry, athletic frame and blossomed into a woman, a woman I barely recognize. No longer the little girl I helped tumble and flip in our father-daughter at-home gymnastics routine I used to love to show off. Spray Larry down, I say, once a day. Hornworms and fresh, green, and fresh greens are in the fridge in case he wakes up when I'm gone. I know what to do, Dad. I worry she'll forget or decide not to. She's no longer fascinated by the green, wriggling caterpillars Larry loves to chomp, but she's a good girl. And she comes by to see me, even when she's not helping out. But Larry is just a lizard and needs someone. Maybe I shouldn't go, I say. I, I want to be here when he wakes up from hibernating. Bruminating, not hibernating. It's different, Dad. Bruminating looks a lot like hibernating, but it's not. There's no loss of weight. He lowers his metabolism so he can get by on low levels of water and oxygen. It's already spring. He never stays asleep this long. It has nothing to do with our weather or our years or seasons or anything. I think it relates to the dry and wet cycles of ancient Australia. That's where lizards like Larry are from, Dad. And they were so, so old, even when humans were young. You know a lot about Larry. You always made me read. You don't think he's sad? You don't want him anymore? Dad, you've had him for how many years? Seven. I think he's happy he gets his nice big tank that would never fit in my dorm. And he's happy I'm looking after him. You think so? No, I think he doesn't notice. I'm not going. Dad, you worked hard on the show. You already paid to have your canvases flown out. Extra legroom for some of them. Plus, she's going to love it. She's going to greenlight the book the way you want it. And Larry will be fine. I'm not worried about Larry. I'll be fine, Dad. You don't want to see her? No, I, I mean I have school. I'm not worried about you or her. Then what's up, Dad? Nothing. 
She brings me the rest of my tattoo gear and I place it in the luggage. She's almost 22. I still see her as the old her sometimes. The her that lifted off her body and left it behind and went up through the sky into space and to planet X. Now that planet X is coming, I wonder what's going to happen to those who survive. Planet X is the place where all our old selves go. Our selves made up of the feelings, dreams, the compassionate wide-eyed selves we used to be and shook off somehow as part of growing up or just growing out. These selves go somewhere. In preparing for this show, I finally realized they go to Planet X. Sarah is smart and she always believes me. She worries. She knows something is wrong. I can't keep this from her. Honey Bunch, let me ask you something. Would you believe your pop if I told you there's a place where all our lost selves go? She takes the boarding pass she's printed for me from the printer, places it on my luggage so I won't forget, cocks her head and looks at me. I see traces of the contour of her little girl face that looked at me the same way when I first told her mom isn't coming home anymore. Mom is an artist. What do you mean lost selves, she says. Ourselves who used to be, you know, like the you who loved Larry, the me who wasn't a tattoo artist. We both know this means the me before her mom left. I see where this is going. I don't want to go and see mom. Plus, I can't. I have exams. I didn't mean that. Okay, okay. Even if I believed you, why a place? A place, like a planet. Maybe there's a planet where all these old selves go. Maybe now, in these crazy times, it's coming back coming back to Earth to bring everyone back, bring us back to ourselves and make everything all right. But still, why a planet? Why would they need a planet? Why not a spaceship or a giant turtle or something? I don't know. I don't know that they need a planet. I just know that it is a planet. You know? I know. I just do. Okay, going with you for a second. But I'm thinking, how do you know this planet isn't full of demons or aliens or alien demons hitching a ride? What? Why would you say that? Because she's my daughter, that's why. I don't know. If I were a demon, it's what I'd want to do to thwart that squishy, feel-good, coming-home plan. I don't know how exactly I would, but it's how I try to wrench things up. The notion is too disturbing to comprehend or even think about anymore. We're done talking about Planet X. But it doesn't matter. We're almost out of time, and the car is here to take me to the airport. I feel them on Planet X. The people who are no more, the cast-offs, the shadows of the selves left behind here on Earth. I see them, not sure if it's in my mind's eye or what, but I see them, lifting their arms, stretching them wide. Sarah is among them, the Sarah who used to be, the Sarah who wanted to be taken to the pet store to see the cute boy who worked there, the Sarah who demanded we come home with Larry. She used to carry him around, his little hatchling lizard self clutching to the front of her shoulder. She used to hand feed him greens and delight in the way he chewed. I always knew this Sarah was still out there somewhere. Now on the eve of my trip to Las Vegas, I know that that place is Planet X. Planet X Sarah and all the people on Planet X are made, off, made, made up of the cast off hopes and dreams of the people on planet Earth. They're not demons, no matter what my darling daughter says. In Las Vegas, I am a man of stone walking through the casino floor. My arms, my legs, my skin, my hands, my heart, all stone. 
all heavy. The only thing allowing me to move is the lightness of the artist and the young boy I'm walking with. I'm living out my fear and loathing in Las Vegas dream with them. The artist, as everyone calls her, is my publisher and Sarah's mother. We used to be married. People started calling her the artist when we got divorced. Some sort of a name thing. A prince thing? I don't know. Now she insists on it. A few minutes ago at my room party, she was coming on to the boy way strong. She pulled out a joint and they were going to step outside to smoke when I said, stop, I'm that young man's attorney. Really, she said, I can't tell when you're serious anymore. Are you an attorney now too, Jaya? Yes, I'm serious. As his attorney, I command you to smoke that joint. He's not serious. Let's go smoke, my ex-wife, the artist, says. She's right. I'm not an attorney. I just love that movie, and I always wanted to say that, especially now since Planet X is coming. What? Did you just say Planet X? You know it? You mean that thing they call Nibiru, the boy said? Are you an astronomer or something? I'm just a tattoo artist, and she's my publisher, and we're here for World Inc. We're going to go get a burger at Johnny Rockets after we smoke this Jaya, the artist says. I guess you can come. The boy walks through the casino floor with us, but he is not made of stone. The artist is not made of stone either. She's made of chromium steel, plated rebar, and platinum on top of that. The boy is a young tattoo artist, not much older than Sarah. His hands are slack and at his sides, but they might as well be outstretched. Like in that movie with Bruce Willis, where at the end he is taking in all the feelings of all the people in the train station. I can tell the boy is feeling all the hopes, all the dreams, whatever passions are left of these masses sitting blindly in front of the slots. Hundreds of the brightly lit machines form rows and rows and rows, neon pinks and blues and greens, photorealistic art advertising fantasies of every flavor, Sherlock Holmes, ancient Egypt, sexy showgirls, firing noise and light at us, tempting us with their digital opium. The boy doesn't have an empathy shield, not yet. Well, I guess he won't ever, because it's too late. It's almost the end. Before I met Sarah's mother, I wasn't made of stone. I didn't have a shield. It was part of what I thought she loved about me. A young couple, not much older than the boy or Sarah, drag an exhausted toddler past us and plop down on the seats in front of the slot machines with Egyptian sphinxes on them. It's 2 AM. The three of us watch silently as the young girl fights to stay awake. She fights to make sense of it all. She doesn't dare care. Her face tells us she's too afraid. Then what looks like an exact copy of her, right down to her pink sweatsuit and all, peels off and separates from her little body, her old self. This detached self floats up and disappears through the casino ceiling. She's going to planet X. The boy can't take it. He's overwhelmed by the tragedy of it all, and he can't stop his tears. The artist confronts him, comforts him. Sometimes I think she's a bitch, a diva, even a predator. But she is showing compassion. Her shield is down, just enough to let him in. I would have never have guessed it, but somehow she has made a true connection with him. Even in Las Vegas, there is hope, the artist says to him. Even here. I didn't think she had it in her. Not at least anymore. I knew she once did. Even though Planet X is coming, is there still really hope? I ask. They don't hear me over the sound of the slots and bells and dings of the casino floor. I leave the artist and the boy to their moment. I don't want to go back to my party. Not yet. I call Sarah. Hi, darling. Has Larry woke up yet? No, Dad. You giving him water anyway? Yes, Dad. You okay? You don't sound good. 
Yeah, honey, don't worry, I'm fine. We hang up. Planet X is heading towards Earth. Any time now, we'll pass the Coupier Belt. Then all the world will know. I wanted to talk about it with Sarah one more time. Was hanging up a bad idea? Hosting a party in a Las Vegas hotel during an art convention is a bad idea, that's for sure. So is leaving state without permission of your parole officer. But living canvases and Soho rent for my gallery doesn't come cheap. Guess that doesn't matter anymore, but I still need the world to know. My parole officer didn't say I couldn't go to the Inked Nation convention, but she didn't say I could. So I figure what she doesn't know can't hurt her, or better yet, me. I want the artist, my ex-wife Sarah's mom, my publisher, to publish the book of my tattoo designs on skin. A book with pages made of skin, not paper. Instead of listening to me, she's comforting the boy, helping him find his shield and probably making out with him. She, can't find a, she can find a way to make the book of skin happen. She's the only one who can. She'll understand ink on paper and digital particles is just not the same. I need to clear my mind. I walk through the next casino bar and head for the gathering area outside. A granite counter rings a fuel-fed fire pit. I push through the revolving doors and join the enthusiastic crowd drinking and talking in the fire glow. Apparently, there is a convention of the Society of Tropical Fish and Reptile Illustrators going on at the same time here. Who knew? Everyone is talking about ink and reptiles and fish. A woman is sitting cross-legged on a high chair ringing the counter. She's alone. Her legs are long and thin. A black and white tattoo of a gila monster adorns her upper thigh. She takes a cigarette from a box with a brand name I don't recognize. I bum a smoke and find myself talking about lizards with her. Then my book. Her accent tells me she's from Australia. The art is skin, books are paper, it's not the same, I say to her. My publisher says people don't care. I care. Do you care? Why does that even matter to you? Why would you say that? No reason, she says. Do you know Planet X is coming? What? It's okay, you do know Planet X is coming. I have to get this right before it does. You're the first person besides my publisher and my daughter that I've told. Uh, yeah, nice, but um, I'm not a person, she says. But I like this conversation. So even if I believe you, which I don't, why does it matter? Tell me. Planet X coming is even more of a reason to put my book on skin. It's not likely anyone will survive, but if they do, my book, this art, has to survive. Wait, did you just say you're not a person? <laughs> I think of Sarah telling me brumination is old born of countless generations of lizards conforming to cycles that were ancient when humans were just dawning. Through the window, I see the artist and the boy walking past the bar arm in arm inside the casino. The sports game on the TV set above the liquor bottles flashes off and is, and is replaced with a newscast. The message, Planet X is coming, scrolls across the screen. The woman, who is not a person, nods affirmatively. The television shows rocket launches, people rich and poor living out their bucket lists, everything imaginable. Demons have thrown off their disguises and are massing in cities around the world. Only they look just like us, the news reports. There is a horde of these very ordinary looking demons outside on the strip. I run inside and catch up with the artist and the boy. All around casino life goes on. All these people, they either don't know or they don't care or they've chosen to come here. The boy has calmed down and leaves us to go to the restroom. I look at my ex-wife, but before I can speak, she grabs my head and kisses me. 
It's a beautiful kiss, like when I first kissed her at midnight on the New Year's Eve we first met. Slow, patient, full of promise. Her lips are full and strong as I remember. Every brush against mine a message, a love story all our own. Then she pulls away. Now leave, she says. I want to be alone with him for the end. Him? Really? We've had our time. Now go. I never thought I'd kiss her again. I never thought I'd ever feel a connection like what we once had. I never thought I could create something as pure as Sarah. I never thought I could know pain as harsh as seeing my daughter depart for Planet X, or seeing my wife, my ex-wife, depart for just nothing. I've been a walking ghost, a walking man of stone, waiting for Larry to wake up and waiting for ghosts. I turn, walk away, Planet X is coming. She's right, we've had our time. I know I'll never see her again. The bar TV shows hordes of demons rampaging on the strip. All around me in the casino, the masses are playing slots, oblivious or willfully disregarding what is happening. The woman from the firing, the one who says she is not a person, comes inside and watches the screen with me. Fuck it, the battle is lost, she says. That's it, I say? That's all you have to say? We'll just be called back to Kahana and get sent to some other planet. What about you? You have any regrets? Regrets? Well, I've never gotten any tattoos. I guess that's not going to happen now. That sounds like a regret. Why'd you never get any? I never found one I wanted enough. What do you think you'd want? Flowers? Something from Australia? Along with a bearded dragon. But I'd want it modeled from real life, though, and I never got around to doing it. My phone rings. Hold on, it's my daughter. Sarah tells me Larry has woken up. Give him water, I say, and greens, and those hornworms. I can't wait to see you. It's been so long. It's been a day, Dad. Does she not know Planet X is coming? Do I have to be the one to tell her? I love you. OK, Dad. Love you, too. We hang up. Want to hit the tables, the demon woman asks. I guess, but not really. Me neither. I'm supposed to be hosting this party. I guess I should go up there and see that through. Then we could go do something if you want. Oh, and I want to call, call my parole officer and tell her to fuck off. Back in the hotel room, the party has thinned out, but it's still going. My living canvases have gotten into my tattoo gear and are tattooing each other. A bunch of people are making out on the bed. Don't you all know Planet X is coming? Most everyone doesn't respond. One of my canvases looks up from her tattoo in progress and says, yeah, we do. We all do. I shrug. The demon woman shrugs. We head to the parking lot for a car. In the garage, the demon helps me boost a 1970 Carmel Brown Dodge Charger. It feels good to steal a car again. Besides tattooing, it's the only thing I was ever really good at. What about you, I ask the demon. Any regrets? There was this one church, she says. This congregation, they were ripe. I could have turned them all. Let's go there. Even if it doesn't matter, it's the end. What else can we do? Stay here? Rampage? Play slots? I guess it's not too late to see my daughter. I really should go and find my ex-wife and get her to publish my Book of Skin. You did say Book of Skin, right? Yeah. Is it for eating? No. <laughs> then what's it for? Never mind. It doesn't matter. How many days do you think we have left? She shrugs. You know the horde is out there, she says. You drive first shift or should I? I get in. The white vinyl interior feels like home. I start the ignition. 
What about you? What do you want to do? Now that you know the truth about Planet X, what are you going to do? We're leaving. This ship is leaving. Are you coming? Thank you. Thank you, and thank you for introducing us to Larry. I really like Larry. Yeah, Larry's I hope cool. Yeah, Larry's cool. Um, anyway, we'll take about a 10-minute break. You can buy Daniel's book. There should be a few left there. Have a drink. Are we out? There are a few left. And he'll sign a few, and uh, we'll be having Mark read it in a few minutes. So have a drink and relax. Someone yelling. We're ready to start. Why is this so weird? That's not usually over there. I'm moving it over. Anyway, you can move wherever you want. But I don't like it that close. Anyway, hi there. Welcome back. At least get me from the top down, so you get rid of the chin. Do it. You have to do it the right way, if you can, or otherwise I delete them. What do you mean by the top down? No, you just do it. You do it slightly higher than me, and then you, yeah. You're taller. You're taller. It's really easy. All right, we'll see. <laughs> they may get deleted or not. Anyway, hi. Welcome back to the second half of Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Um, thank you. Just a warning that we are running out of money, it turns out. I mean, we did a fundraiser about two years ago, three, three years ago, and the money has been really good. You know, it's lasted this long. And the money is to pay for the writers and pay for dinner for the writers and pay our bartenders a nice tip. Um, and so probably within the next six, six months, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do next. We decided we're not doing a Patreon. <coughs> it just doesn't make sense for us for what we do. So we're probably going to try to do a Kickstarter again somehow. And if someone would like to help us, we would really appreciate it because it's a pain in the ass to do a Kickstarter. So if anyone who's really into this kind of thing would like to approach me or Matt and volunteer to help put it together, we'd love it. And we probably won't do it for another six months or so, six to eight months, but we, we do need to do it. So anyway, uh, Mark Laidlaw is our next reader. He's the author of five novels, including Dad's Nuke and the 37th Mandala, the latter of which won the International Horror Guild Award. He's been publishing short stories since 1977, appearing in most genre venues, including Omni and the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. From 1997 to 2016, he is now old enough to be retired. Sorry. I published his first solo story in Omni, and he was one of those people who, you say, I don't want the story, it doesn't work, or it's okay, but it needs work. And he, would, he sent it back like four times. Yeah. And I finally bought it. You know. Except the next to last one I bought, because the last one he fucked it up. Anyway, he did. He did. He t remember? Where are you? Oh, there you are, yes. And that was 400 boys. Everybody should know this, of course. Yes, right. Yeah. Don't, you don't always do the last revision. Or if you do, you might, we might want you to take it back. <laughs> um, anyway, from 1997 to 2016, he was a lead writer at Valve Software, where he helped create the blockbuster video game series Half-Life and Dota? Dota 2? Yeah, Dota. I, I don't know this stuff. It, to me, it seems like it should be Data. All right. His latest book is the novella White Spawn from PS Publishing. So please welcome Mark Laidlaw. Thank you for coming, everybody. Thank you, Ellen, 
mentioned Omni and FNSF. Gordon Van Gelder is over there. He's our special Two of my favorite editors, people who really had a huge impact on my career. Um, Ellen started out buying my short stories, and Gordon bought my books when I had kind of given up the whole idea of uh, writing altogether. But so they've really helped me out a lot. So hopefully this returns the favor a little bit. Um, I'm going to read two things. The first is a short story that just came out today, so hopefully not many people have read it, if anybody. Uh, it's at Nightmare Magazine, so if you want to check up later and see if I got any words wrong, you can always <laughs> go check. Um, so I'll do that first. This is called uh, The Finest, Fullest Flowering. A sour note shrieked from the limousine speakers, making Milston's fingers curl in his lap. He took a moment to compose himself before rapping precisely and with a now steady hand on the glass separating him from the driver. The tone had droned into a, into a hum that tunelessly dreamt of someday becoming hypnotic. What is this we're listening to, and is there any way to turn it off? <laughs> Down, sir, but not off, I'm afraid. The driver lowered the volume to a level barely audible. This was in some respects even more annoying. Part of the colony's ambience, sir, part of the design. Won't be much longer, though, sir. We're almost there. There turned out to be a pale brown stucco bungalow, unremarkable except for the roof of green ceramic tile. From overhead, you might not see it among the trees. Everything here, from the hidden runway to the matte and muted colors of the limousine, bespoke discretion, if not outright camouflage. As he stepped from the car and the driver came around to retrieve his single suitcase and worn black valise from the trunk, he heard the volume of the music increase again, and he realized it was everywhere, moaning from speakers in the trees. There was no turning it down. The sour notes, still plentiful, were also now unavoidable. His luggage was placed on a cart. Your bags will be waiting for you in your suite. But first, sir, your tour. The driver bowed, ducked back into the limousine, and executed a turn that took the car back toward the airfield. Milston looked about, waiting for a word or direction from the plump older man who stood watchfully by the cart, presumably a concierge. Am I to meet my patron here, he asked finally. Mr. Milston, it is my great pleasure. Like you, I delight in anonymity. In fact, it has become essential to my survival. Without it, I could never travel, although at this point I rarely leave the island. All my needs are more than met here, as I hope they will be for you. Shall we begin? Milston took the proffered hand, found it dry, uncalloused, possessed of a faint tremor. What am I to call you, he asked. Patron would be perfect. I think you will find me worthy of the title. Nothing would please me more than to support your work. I understand you will need convincing, but surely you have already looked into my ability to fulfill my promises. A young woman in a dun uniform emerged from the bungalow to retrieve the cart. The men walked into the trees. They soon came out on a terrace overlooking hectares of manicured parkland. There were more jade-roofed bungalows, but no buildings taller than three stories, nothing that stood above the trees. From the plain, as it descended out of blinding tropical clouds, he had seen breakers and beach on the far side of the island, plenty of room for the patron's playground. Everywhere you wander, and I assure you there are no places off limits, you will come across beauties and wonders. 
My aim is to provide them in endless profusion. Of course, we are now we are only a decade into the garden by now, barely out of the planning stages. A small silver car awaited them, an electric capsule mounted on a buried track. The patron urged him in, and once they were seated, the tiny car glided down the sloped terrace. The ubiquitous drone of the music had modulated into something like a faintly complaining whine. The car spread through sculpture gardens and groves where avant-garde topiary trimmers had been at work. I will not attempt to impress you with the names of my gardeners. As with many I've hired, the best practitioners are known by name only to the connoisseur. I rely on connoissenti to advise me in all things. Which is, of course, how you came to my attention. Your work is the finest in the field, and you're approaching the height of your expressive powers. I hope to provide the opportunity to explore avenues you might never have dared believe could open to you. The car rolled to a stop at another low, earth-colored villa, this one overlooking a lake. Fans of spray wavered against a backdrop of palms. The air was just warm enough to make the breeze delicious. Inside the house, the music was muted to whatever managed to filter in from outside. A home of this sort is what we provide initially, the patron explained. With time, architectural variety is expected to arise, and you would be encouraged to help design your own ideal accommodations. A great deal of what you see is blank slate, unmolded clay, whatever medium suits you. They had come out into a room of several stories depth. The ceiling was all glass, flooded with sunlight, the cavernous space below filled with scaffolding. The center of all activity, suspended in the pit, was an enormous black stone over which dozens of artisans scrambled, busy with torches, chisels, drills. A single iron meteorite brought here at my expense that Samira Potoki might pursue her inspiration. It is the heaviest single object ever lifted by air transport. I first had to commission and build a plane powerful enough to carry it, but expenses never hindered me. I liberate my artists to dream as big as they like, or as small. I just completed a STEM lab for the whim of another resident who works at the level of the electron. Few will ever see the work he creates, but that is no longer the point of art, if it ever was. If the audience is properly appreciative, can it matter to the artist if that audience numbers only one? Ah, Samira, meet our latest prospective colonist. She was a small, dark woman in dusty coveralls with sharp features and bright eyes. There is nothing so radiant as an artist fulfilled, the patron said, and her smile supported his statement. Delighted, she said. I hope we will soon be neighbors. What are you working on, he asked, to be polite. I'm not working on, I'm working toward. I offer all my artists the space and resources they need to explore without worrying about arriving anywhere. For Samira, a meteorite. For you, I wonder. I hope to learn what I can offer beyond the obvious supplies. Milston inclined his head, squeezed the sculptor's hand briefly, and was ushered forward. Beyond the space full of scaffolding, outside again, another car waited to carry them deeper into jungle. You can, of course, walk, drive, or be driven, or request any manner of conveyance, the patron assured him. For some, the incubatory process is stimulated by aimless driving, so we've started on construction of a self-contained highway system. There are creative solutions to every need when you have access to sufficient resources. Also, I detected perhaps a bit of a mutual spark between you and Samira. Let me assure you that privacy will be respected and promoted in a way the outside can never approach. My guests can explore any type of relationships they wish without censure. 
Whatever limits you wish to impose on your own tastes, I leave you to set for yourself. I hazard no guess as to your predilections. Now, from the visual arts to the audible. The building they next approached was a thin spire among the trees, itself a treehouse sheathed in translucent resin mesh. It was awkwardly placed in a scene of such balanced beauty. One of our earliest residents, the patron said, as you can see, he had a hand in his home's design, and while his natural talents are many, in styling himself an architect, I fear he might have finally overreached. Still, I do not like to inhibit my artists. This is all part of his growth. They rode a small cylindrical lift up the trunk of the tower, stepping out onto a circular loft that gave a view, toward the, a view through the trees of distant shore and a misty estuary. Wide white birds glided toward the waves. Seated before the vista, as if controlling it from a vast console of sliders and keys, was a man with long, thinning gray hair. The squonking of the island's ongoing soundtrack grew aggrieved. Our resident composer, said the patron. Why are you disturbing me? Have I not asked you repeatedly to leave me off your tour? The composer would not turn around. He treated them to a view of his bald, spotty pate, and that was all. In most cases, I have respected that wish, said the patron, but I felt an exception was necessary. The patron turned to Milston with an apologetic expression. From time to time, I may insist on a patron's privilege. I trust I know better than to abuse it. Consider that we only come to admire the view. Well, you've seen it. Now be off. I have been enjoying your latest compositions very much, I should mention, said the patron with apparent sincerity. The bony white fingers paused on the keyboard. I am told that in certain of the residences, speakers have been disabled. The air trembled with an extended note not quite of melancholy, not quite of anything specific enough to characterize. Milston found himself staring at the poorly manicured fingers, the ragged, bitten nails, like visual equivalents of the sounds that had accompanied his tour. A pleasure meeting you, he said, but there was no verbal reply from the composer, just another misplaced warble, a sonic non sequitur that sent the birds from the trees. From the treehouse, they proceeded to a vast kitchen complex, where chefs with names he almost recognized ordered about kitchen staff of only slightly lesser celebrity. Lunch was served above the waves on an enclosed pier from which he could look back toward the island or out toward the undisturbed horizon. Each dish was a revelation. Imagine such miracles at every meal, the patron said, and in every aspect of your life and work. Does it tempt you? There is much more still to see, but I wonder what you think so far. You are persuasive, Milston allowed himself to say. Well, it is not I alone, it is the Enterprise. What we have here is a place that allows the fullest, finest flowering of human endeavor in all its variety. The arts are permitted to come into their own, and what I get out of all this is something I cannot describe. To be patron. There is no greater honor or pleasure. Now, shall we go? There are others to meet. A tiny portion of our residence, but it should give you a taste of all you'll have access to. Ultimately, our greatest resource is the community we're gathering. Before we continue, I just want to clarify the one stipulation that I'm sure has been a sticking point for many before me. The fact that you can never leave. That one, yes. Our residents find security and certainty. I can bring anything I like here to the island, but nothing gets out. Nothing, and no one. A prison, some have called it, but one that allows for utter freedom of expression. 
I should think you especially would find this liberating, given that your own work has been so restricted, curtailed, and banned outright. What about the rest of the world? Don't you wonder if you're robbing them of something essential, something they might miss? Does the world deserve them, Mr. Milston? Would that world miss you? Milston, sitting very still, said nothing more. Shall we? They rose and walked along the pier, once more back to a silent silver capsule. The rest of the day was spent in the company of an extraordinary variety of extraordinary people, poets, painters, planners, programmers. At sunset, they joined a party being held in a plaza by the sea. Milston mingled and the patron disappeared, but Samira soon found him and introduced him to still more of the colony's residents. The composer did not attend the fete, but he was there in spirit with a brooding score that made them all laugh, eliciting frequent snide remarks. Please tell me you're a new composer, said an elderly woman with reflective pupils, but then she stopped his mouth with a finger. No, don't. For now, let us leave some mystery. There's little enough of that here, though each new arrival brings the hope of it. And she gave him a wine-soaked kiss with an expertly placed but feeble grasp at his crotch, which cost him nothing to endure. It was full tropic dark, but still early when the patron found him in the crowd and pulled him aside once more. Mr. Milston, I have given you a full day of my time. This is all I can offer a prospective resident, I'm afraid. In the morning, we either put you on a plane and you never hear from me again, or you wake to begin your new life here. If the former, I very much enjoyed meeting you, and I regret but respect your decision. If the latter, then you may sleep in as late as you wish. There will be plenty of time for further orientation, and I promise you I will enjoy following your work and look forward to learning from the master. Now, your suite is ready if you are. They rode a silver car in silence through a landscape of artfully illuminated fountains and pools. Guests walked among the trees, watching the car pass, as if wondering what choice he had reached, but there had never really been any choice to make. When the car stopped before the bungalow where the day's tour had begun, he shook the patron's hand and said, I appear to be jet-lagged. Apologies if I have not been quite myself. I'm sure I'll feel better after a night's rest. Can we meet again sometime tomorrow afternoon? Perfect, said the patron. I'll leave instructions that you are not to be disturbed. Good night, and welcome. You've made a splendid choice. The silver car whispered away. The house was small, but it had all the comforts and conveniences. He unpacked his suitcases and put his clothes away found a bottle of very old whiskey and a box of very young cigars, but these were not what tempted him. He went out onto the terrace and gazed over the gardens. He was braced and waiting for the aimless soundtrack to make one more offensive squawk when suddenly it stopped. The sounds of island night crept in. It was bliss. The landscape was sparingly painted with light, evocative as a dream. He saw hints of buildings through the trees, the glow of ornamental ponds, white coral pillars, miles and miles of gardens. A distant spire that must have belonged to the composer now retired for the night. In the absence of music, he felt he could finally think, could finally imagine what might take its place, what this garden truly needed. The finest, fullest flowering, the patron had stated, and indeed it was true. The place was in full bloom, but every garden needed pruning, pruning and a blossom deserved to be lopped before its prime had passed, before its petals fell. He set his black bag on the table, thinking of tools he had always wanted but never bothered to acquire, never daring to think he might get to use them, but that could come later, for now he had all he needed to get started. 
He took out his prized set of shears, edges gleaming, of pristine surgical steel. I'll begin with that composer's horrible, hideous, ragged-nailed fingers, he thought, looking off toward the dark house of sound, imagining notes that were very sweet indeed. The end. Thank you, thank you. not available um, okay the next thing I'm going to read oh so that came out today in Nightmare Magazine so it's it's got to escape the paywall earlier so it's there um, the next thing is uh, work in progress and um, has a little bit of a story behind it uh, both of my daughters had to um, read Frankenstein in high school or junior high both of them were very excited to do so and then extremely disappointed when they actually got into it. Um, if you haven't looked at Frankenstein in a while, the, at least the first 20 pages or so are letters between characters who aren't in the story and vaguely related to it. And um, they both seemed to feel they were, they were expecting monsters, I guess. So uh, after this happened the second time, I kind of hatched an idea of uh, doing something I call Frankenstein with actual monsters. <laughs> so, with, um, armed with, uh, I think, I guess it's the Gutenberg.org edition of uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, I've been slowly adding monsters to Frankenstein. Um, at least one monster per paragraph. This is our guarantee. So, I'm going to read the first letter. So, most of this obviously is Mary Shelley, and a little bit is me. Uh, and it was inspired by something called fucking Dracula, which you can find on Amazon, but somebody just went through Dracula and added the word fucking almost everywhere. And they, they came so close, but they, they didn't really go for the comic timing. They just sort of hit a macro and added Frankenstein. So I always felt like, oh, so close. So this was uh, my attempt to get a little closer. Letter one, St. Petersburg, December 11th, 17, whatever. To Mrs. Seville, England. You will rejoice to hear that no disaster has accompanied the commencement of an enterprise which you have regarded with such evil forebodings. I arrived here yesterday, and my first task is to assure my dear sister of my welfare and increasing confidence in the success of my undertaking and the absolute lack of any monsters that she need worry about. <laughs> I am already far north of London, and as I walk in the streets of Petersburg, I feel a cold northern breeze play upon my cheeks, which braces my nerves and fills me with delight. Do you understand this feeling? This breeze, which has traveled from the regions towards which I am advancing, gives me a foretaste of those icy climes. Inspirited by this wind of promise, my daydreams become more fervent and vivid. I picture Dracula! mooning himself beneath a silvery orb. Mummies and wolfmen ply me with Italian ices. I try in vain to be persuaded that the pole is the seat of frost and desolation. It ever presents itself to my imagination as the region of beauty and delight. There, Margaret, the sun is forever visible, its broad disk just skirting the horizon and diffusing a perpetual splendor. There, for with your leave, my sister, I will put some trust in preceding navigators, there, snow and frost and hideous creatures out of nightmare are banished. And sailing over a calm sea, we may be wafted to a land surpassing in wonders and in beauty every region hitherto discovered on the habitable globe. Its productions and features, 
may be without example, as the phenomena of the heavenly bodies undoubtedly are in those undiscovered solitudes, what may not be expected in a country of eternal light other than a total lack of vampires? <laughs> I may there discover the wondrous power which attracts the needle, repels bloodsuckers, and may regulate a thousand celestial observations that require only this voyage to render their seeming eccentricities consistent forever. I shall satiate my ardent curiosity with a sight of a part of the world never before visited and may tread a land never before imprinted by the foot of man or vampire. <laughs> These are my enticements, and they are sufficient to conquer all fear of danger or death or undead and to induce me to commence this laborious voyage with the joy a child feels when he embarks in a little boat with his holiday mates on an expedition of discovery at his native river. But supposing all these conjectures to be false, you cannot contest the inestimable benefit which I shall confer on all mankind to the last generation by discovering a passage near the pole to those countries to reach which at present so many months are requisite, or by ascertaining the secret of the magnet which, if at all possible, can only be effected by an undertaking such as mine. These reflections have dispelled the agitation with which I began my letter, and I feel my heart glow with an enthusiasm which elevates me to heaven, for nothing contributes so much to tranquilize the mind as a steady purpose, a point on which the soul may fix its intellectual eye. This expedition has been the favorite dream of my early years to counteract my childish nightmares. I have read with ardor the accounts of the various voyages which have been made in the prospect of arriving at the North Pacific Ocean through the seas which surround the pole. You may remember that a history of all the voyages made for purposes of discovery composed the whole of our good Uncle Thomas's library, except for those small dioramas featuring monsters in various threatening poses. <laughs> my education was neglected, yet I was passionately fond of reading. These volumes were my study day and night, and my familiarity with them increased that regret which I had felt as a child on learning that my father's dying injunction a curse lifted from the Necronomicon had forbidden my uncle to allow me to embark in a seafaring life. There's more tedium yet to come, I assure you. Six years have passed since I resolved on my present undertaking, which makes me, in a sense, an undertaker. I can even now remember the hour from which I dedicated myself to this great enterprise. I commenced by inuring my body to hardship, I accompanied the whale fishers on several expeditions to the North Sea. I feasted on the dead. I voluntarily, I voluntarily endured cold, famine, thirst, want of sleep, and Sasquatch attack. <laughs> I often worked harder than the common sailors during the day and devoted my nights to the study of mathematics, the theory of medicine, and those branches of physical science from which a naval adventurer might derive the greatest practical advantage and monstrology. Twice I actually hired myself as an undermate and a Greenland whaler and acquitted myself to admiration. I must own I felt a little proud when my captain offered me the second dignity in the vessel and entreated me to remain with the greatest earnestness, so valuable did he consider my services. And now, dear Margaret, do I not deserve to accomp accomplish some great purpose? My life might have been passed in ease and luxury, but I preferred glory and monster stalking to every enticement that wealth placed in my path. Oh, that some encouraging voice would answer in the affirmative. My courage and my resolution is firm, but my hopes fluctuate and my spirits are often depressed. I am about to proceed on a long and difficult voyage, the emergencies of which, 
and the spectral haunts which will no doubt trouble the ship will demand all my fortitude. I am required not only to raise the spirits of others, but sometimes to sustain my own when theirs are falling. I am also sometimes required to raise the spirits of the dead and the flesh of them as well. This is the most favorable period for traveling in Russia. They, the people, not the bayaki or vampire bats, fly quickly over the snow in their sledges. The motion is pleasant and, in my opinion, far more agreeable than that of an English stagecoach. The cold is not excessive if you are wrapped in furs, a dress which I have already adopted, for there is a great difference between walking the deck and remaining seated motionless for hours when no exercise prevents the blood from actually freezing in your veins, though that might foil the action of certain predatory creatures of the night. I have no ambition to lose my life on the post road between St. Petersburg and Archangel, or even Archdevil. I shall depart for the latter town in a fortnight or three weeks, and my intention is to hire a ship there, which can easily be done by paying the insurance for the owner and to engage as many sailors as I think necessary among those who are accustomed to the whale fishing. I do not intend to sail until the month of June, and when shall I return? Ah, dear sister, how can I answer this question? If I succeed, many, many months, perhaps years, will pass before you and I may meet. If I fail, you will see me again soon or never. Farewell, my dear, excellent monster, I mean Margaret. Heaven shower down blessings on you, hell fling them upward, and save me that I may again and again testify my gratitude for all your love and kindness. Your affectionate brother, not a monster, I swear by God, and not the God of monsters, but the regular God, R. Walton. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was great. And I hope to see you next month. And uh, you can hang out and drink. Or I think there are how many books are left? Come on, don't let five. Don't let Daniel Tate have to take those home. Come on, buy them and let them in the science. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.